Christ is the dawn, the day spring. For 400 years, Israel lived in anticipation of the day, in oppression by the Greeks and then the Romans. They lived in uh, slavery almost, even though living in Israel. And they expected their Messiah to come and throw off Rome, but he throw, threw off so much more. And the dawn has come. If you're here today um, and don't know Christ, you're still living in darkness. Christ is the dawn. He is what you've been missing. He is what makes Christmas meaningful. He is what makes every single day worth getting up for. And so we uh, await our coming of our Savior a second time to rule and reign. Until then, uh, as we saw last week, we should be patient. And I had to tell myself what I preached several times, and actually my kids reminded me, Dad, are you looking for the coming of the Lord? You're not very patient. <laughs> and uh, it's a good reminder. Uh, yesterday, I remember, I think I was working by myself, but lacking patience even by myself and needing to focus on the coming of the Lord. And you know what that did for my soul? It provided me patience. It does, God's word does work. That shouldn't be a surprise to us, but sometimes it does. James 5, in our Bibles, Lord willing, we will finish uh, James um, this morning and then have a review message on the 29th next week. I'll take a Christmas uh, carol and look at that. It's been our tradition as a church uh, to do that on uh, the Sunday before Christmas. And then next Sunday night, our children will sing, our choir will sing, and um, we will all sing together, hear God's word read, and then uh, devotional. It's a good time to bring unsaved family and friends uh, to, uh, to that, and we'll have a time of food and fellowship after, after that. James 5, uh, we did not have our scripture reading, uh, so I'll read it for us. Um, James 5, uh, 13 uh, to 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let, him, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And it, for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Our Father, it is not by might or by power or by clever intellect this morning 
that I desire to share your word. I just want to be a mouthpiece for you, a herald of what you have written and what you expect us to do with what you have written. And I prayed that you'd find us faithful this week as we await your coming. We know it is at hand. We know the judge stands at the door. And I pray that we would be patient and we would be praying. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I don't know about you, but when it comes to humility, patience, and prayer, every time I hear a message on that, I say, convicting. This is how James ends his book, with prayer. It's interesting that he starts with trials, and trials should point us to praying. And as we have looked at a quest as a, a quest for wholeness, uh, maturity that uh, is so lacking in our culture and in our world, and many times in our hearts that... Um, when we fall short of the glory of God should be a, a wake-up that we need God. We need to pray. And yet if we were to ask how many of us pray for an hour, I, for our closing song, we'll sing Sweet Hour of Prayer. And um, it's been convicting to me that I have uh, rarely spent a solid hour doing nothing but praying. And yet, I know prayer is powerful, and we would all say, yes, prayer is powerful, definitely. So let's look at how much time we've spent praying this week. You'd say, oh, uh, we all struggle to pray. And yet this passage that James is going to conclude with is going to be full of encouragement for us to pray. How does he encourage us to pray? Well, he starts with verse 13, saying, Is anyone among you suffering? Every time we suffer and go through the various trials that God allows us to go through is an encouragement for us to pray. We need God. Every suffering Christian would agree, Yes, I need God more now than ever. I met with a missionary this week, and he said to me, Man, we really need people praying for us. We know we need people praying for us, especially when we suffer. But this is personal praying. Anyone, this is personal. If you suffer personally, and sometimes we suffer, and no one knows that we're suffering, we need to know that we can talk to God as we personally suffer. And our God is encouraging us through James here to pray. So if you're suffering... Pretty simple. Talk to God. Talk to God about your suffering. You may want to post it on Facebook. You want everyone of your friends to know about it, but sometimes when so many people are suffering in so many ways, we end up shutting it off because we can't possibly bear everybody's burden at once. And we have people all around the world that are sick and people that are dying and going to hell. And we have people that are starving and we have people who are orphans and we have people. And as soon as you hear that, and especially at Christmas time, uh, people who want money, charities are going to make you feel bad. You're like, I can't help everybody. And you can't either. But God can. And when we suffer, our first response in suffering is, 
I need to talk to God. I need to tell him that I'm suffering. Does he know that we're suffering? Absolutely. We might be suffering with things that we don't even know about. We may have symptoms of something, and he knows exactly what it is. Maybe even a doctor doesn't know what it is. But you, he wants you to talk to him. And there are many, many psalms that are written because the psalmist was suffering. And how to talk to God in suffering, uh, you'll find it in many, many psalms and the book of Lamentations. How to talk to God in suffering. But do we even think, when I suffer, I want to... I just have to pray. That's, that's where we need to be. As mature believers, when we suffer, God's provoking us to talk to him. And it just says, pray. That's all it says in verse 13. Is anyone cheerful? Now, if you get a Christmas present that you've always been waiting for, you watch the commercials, right? Very few people wake up to a brand new car in their, in their driveway. But that's what the commercials So Everybody is, is getting new cars for Christmas, right? Uh, but that's not usually how it works. And if it did work that way, you're like, what's the car payment, right? Okay. So it's not like we paid for cash for this car, and it's a, a, a Mercedes or a new GMC truck. But If I woke up and there was a new truck in my, in my parking lot at my house, I would be cheerful. If you woke up and had the gift of a lifetime, um, you would be cheerful as well. There are times in life that you're not suffering or the suffering is minimal and the cheerfulness grows. The, the Sparkmans just had third grandchild born. Guaranteed on Friday there was some cheerful cheerfulness in Illinois around the birth of little Michael John. So what do you do when you're cheerful? You talk to God. Do you think God only wants to hear us when we suffer? God, I'm suffering. Yep, it's you again, the suffering Christian. And then he gives us good gifts, right? Because every good and perfect gift comes from above, James 1 says. And when God gives us good things, we should be cheerful. And when we're cheerful, we're like, yes! And if I woke up with a truck in my parking lot at my house, I would say, yes! Give me the keys! And off I go on a ride. But if I first response when I'm cheerful isn't, thank you, Lord, for providing this for me. I'm not living like a mature Christian. So when I suffer, the first response is I talk to God. When I'm cheerful, everything's great. I get a check in the mail. I get whatever is really good. My kids did really good in a, in a program. Or we have days off of school. Yay! We should be talking to God. God wants us to be thankful and praising Him. What's, what's verse 13 say? Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Singing praise is what God loves to hear. And you, we encouraged us, our, each other this morning to sing praise and talk to our God in praise. And sometimes we have to sing while we suffer or while we're tired or we don't feel well. But sometimes we are cheerful. And this is a time of year where the world may be enduring it and trying to muster up cheer 
But we who know God and walk with God should be the most cheerful people on the planet. And we shouldn't have to muster up a Merry Christmas. It should be cheer. We should be happy. We're not always happy. We're usually not happy when we suffer. But when God allows us to be happy, is an opportunity to talk to God personally. Do you personally talk to God when you're personally cheerful? When you personally suffer, no one's around, you're crying out to God. Whenever you're personally cheerful, at home, no one's around, in your car, you should be singing praise to God. And there are a lot of good songs out there that would encourage you, and you can sing along. Even if you can't sing, sing in your car, it's okay. Um, you need to learn to sing praise to God. This is what God expects of mature believers. So first response to suffering, pray. First response to cheerfulness, sing praise. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? And this may be spiritual sickness or, or uh, physical sickness. Sounds like physical sickness. And sometimes we suffer so much that we can't even pray. We're so weak, we can't think right. Some medications do this. And so when I go visit people that are in the hospital, I, I, hardly, I don't think I've ever gone without praying. And usually the person wants me to pray, uh, is encouraged by prayer. Um, and so like a hospital visit or a home, uh, home visit, uh, verse 14 says, Is anyone among you sick? Can't even pray so weak to pray? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, uh, causing him to focus on the Lord, and the prayer of um, faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed any sins, he will be uh, forgiven. I skipped the last, the last note here. So every occasion is an opportunity to commune with your God and Savior. Don't get so busy this time of year that you don't have time to pray. Don't get too busy in January where you don't have all the parties, where you don't have to mow grass. You say, well, you have to shovel snow. Yes, you may have to shovel snow. But even shoveling snow is an opportunity to commune with your God and Savior. If you're running, walking behind a snowblower, do you know how many other people you can talk to? None. You can't even talk on the phone. But you can talk to God even while you're blowing snow. We're in James 5, for those of you welcome back, James 5 and verse 14. James 5 and verse 14. So the, the rest of this passage talks about not personal praying, but praying for others. And so there's intercession within the church, verses 14 to 16. Uh, 17 is a debate whether it fits within the church or outside the church, but I've chosen to put it uh, outside, verse 17 and 18, and uh, I'll uh, I think I can prove that to you from the Old Testament. But So verses 14 to 16 about praying is praying if you are in a church. Some go to a church, multiple churches, because they like the singing here, they like the preaching here, they like the youth group here, they like uh, the home groups here, and they don't really have one church they go to, so they have four pastors, so to speak, elders, um, in their lives, but no one church. And if you say this is your church, 
and you are my pastor if you're talking to me, when you are sick and in the hospital, please tell me. If I find out you're in the hospital and you don't tell me and you don't tell anyone and you're in there for a week and then you get out and I find out, ah, oh, I will come visit you unless I'm in the hospital with you in this event. Uh, I will try to come, or I'm on vacation. I will, I will come visit you. I will talk to you. I will uh, try to encourage you and try to help your family in any way we can. Uh, but this is, the, this is the picture we get here of someone who's so sick, can't help themselves, can barely pray, and so they need encouragement uh, from the leadership at church. This doesn't guarantee that everyone who is sick is guaranteed to get better. Um, some may say that, but you really don't want, if you are, um, everyone who's ever lived as a Christian, even people who have been resurrected from the dead, Lazarus, Jairus's daughter, the people at the resurrection, or at the death of Christ, all those people were resurrected from the dead, Dorcas in the book of Acts, they all died again. They probably died of old age, whatever, um, whatever sickness they had. But uh, we look at death as something to be absolutely avoided and the worst thing that can possibly happen until we realize, wait a minute, we go from here to heaven? And Jesus says in John 17, the people that are on earth, I'm praying for them, those who are mine, that where I am, I want them to be with me. And when people are suffering to the point of death, we often pray, God spare them, God spare them, God spare them. And Christ is praying, and Spurgeon says this, Christ is praying opposite of what we're praying, and he's at God's right hand. Who do you want God to listen to? You guys praying? <laughs> Please spare them, spare them, spare them. Or Christ saying, I want them to be with me. For to be with him is perfect. But this is about those who are sick and those who need healing on earth. This does not say that we shouldn't go to doctors. This doesn't have, I don't have any magical oil. I can't find any online uh, or anywhere else that I can take with me. I don't take oil with me to the hospital to anoint anyone. Uh, but anointing with oil was a way to like wash uh, hair, uh, to prepare your body for the day. Um, and so it may be something along the lines of cleansing. Uh, but my pastor that mentored me in Indiana said he's had a few people, and he was in his 70s, late 60s when he retired, but he said, I had a few people that have asked me to do this. He said, I didn't know what kind of oil to take, so I took olive oil. Um, but I, we can't guarantee that this is uh, going to heal you. Uh, because if this was the case, then there wouldn't be any sick people at all. And we wouldn't want, now you think about it, mature Christians uh, don't, aren't guaranteed that we get out of all of our trials, right? We have faith to endure them, and sometimes the trial of sickness ends in death. Um, but this, the focus here is on the interceding, the praying not necessarily the results of praying, and it doesn't say other than he will be, um, the Lord will raise him up. So the focus is on the Lord. So we pray over him, if you look at verse 14 with me. So it's the leaders of the church, 
praying for him, praying in the name of the Lord, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So expecting the Lord to intervene for this person. The prayer of faith. Faith in who? Faith in the Lord will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. So the elders of the church don't raise this person up. Now, there were times in the beginning of church history when the apostles had the ability to heal people, but there were t- that was fading away so that Paul later says, I had to leave, I think it was Epaphroditus or someone else, Tychicus, sick. And so Paul's ability to heal people was fading as the apostleship, as the word of God was being written, the, uh, the miraculous uh, uh, praying and uh, healing was diminishing. Um, but the Lord uses prayer of his people to heal the physically sick. So on Wednesday night, if you come to Wednesday night and we pray as adults, we pray for the physically sick in our church. And those who have been ongoing sickness for years and years, we put, have a line of encouragement and health. And if you want to be included in that or you have family in that category that they are believers and they need to be encouraged, and I will encourage you that as we talk to people about their physical sickness and talk to Christians about their physical sickness, it's not merely just physical. God wants us to pray spiritually for people as well. And sometimes, not every time, I don't know, Sometimes physical sickness, and that's what James is going to say here at the end of verse 15. And if he has committed sins. So the, the idea, I think, here is that he's sick because he has sinned against God and God is judging him. And that is throughout the rest of the, of the New Testament as well, that people are sick. First uh, Corinthians 11, as they uh, didn't do the Lord's table as God expected, that many were sick among them, and some died because they didn't uh, perform the Lord's table with seriousness. And, uh, and so we want to avoid that as a church. Um, but the Lord uses the prayers of his people to heal the physically sick in the, in the first part of 15 and 14, and then the Lord uses the prayers of his people to heal the spi- spiritually sick. And sometimes... We disobey God. We have consequences for disobeying God that are physical consequences. And those physical consequences are so severe that we can't even pray. And so when we, uh, as leaders, uh, try to help those in our church that are struggling physically, um, one aspect of helping people is not just physical, but is spiritual as well. And uh, if we're physically sick, we need... um, we need God's help, and spiritually sick, you need to repent of sin, and uh, sometimes the consequences are ongoing, uh, like David's consequences for his sin and others, uh, but we don't know, and we're not guaranteed healing. What does Paul say? Uh, that he asked three times for the thorn in the flesh to be healed. He may have went through this, the elders of his church, uh, to pray over him. Uh, but he, uh, God said, my grace is sufficient. I'm not going to give you healing. And so sometimes we live with physical problems until the day we die. And it's not uh, because we have sinned. It's because God is having us go through this trial. And God's ways are higher. But all of this needs to be uh, personal praying. That's personal praying. So intercession in the church is we intercede for others. You know what happens whenever we intercede for others? We love them. 
We show them love. Our hearts are drawn to people that we pray for. If you and I would pray for each other on a regular basis, those who are physically suffering, those who are spiritually suffering, whenever you see that person at church, you're going to ask how they're doing. And it's not going to be a greeting. Hey, how's it going? It's going to be, no, I, I really want to know how you're doing because I heard that you're in the hospital. I heard you had surgery. I heard whatever it was. And I, I've been praying for you. And as we struggle, we need to be honest with others that sometimes we are spiritually sick and sometimes we are physically sick and we need God's help. If you personally are struggling to pray, you need help in praying, and it's okay. This is why we exist as a church, to help each other. And then verse 16, Therefore, because it's our job to pray for others, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. So you can't pray for people who you're not right with, but God has a way for us to be right with himself and with others by confession of sin. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So if someone that is physically sick who has also committed sin, and that's why they're sick, when they're feeling better or when they're able to, when they know what they're supposed to do, they need to confess their sins um, to one another. And then they need to pray for the people that they have hurt so that God will heal them. It's interesting that Job, at the end of his book, whenever he um, is right with God, at the Job 42, that his friends were told, go talk to Job, and Job will pray for you. And that's the final piece that was missing in Job's, um, in Job's story, is that he was reconciled to God in the beginning of Job 42, in the middle of Job 42, his friends had who they offended him. They sinned against him by accusing him of things that he didn't do. And he had to pray for them, intercede for them. And that's when the final healing of Job happened. So praying for one another, confessing sin to one another, and interceding for one another, this is all inside the church. Uh, so when you see the one another's in the New Testament, that is almost always in the context of the church. So keep short sin accounts with each other in the church. Don't hinder powerful prayer. Sin hinders praying. If I am in sin, you don't want me praying for you. So my sins are, or my sins cause me to not be able to talk to God. And so we keep short sin accounts with God and with each other in the church. If we don't, we're hindering, hindering powerful prayer. In verse 16, so it was in our bulletin, the end of it says, the prayer of a righteous person, someone who is right with God and is right with other people in a church, has great power as it is working. We come on Wednesday night, that's our prayer meeting, and we expect prayer to be powerful. We expect to be righteous people as God has made us righteous in His Son, and we expect to gather together as his people and cry out to God, and God hears our intercession. And there are a number of times that people that I've heard of that have come to church and said, hey, my neighbor or my friend, they found out I was going to prayer meeting, and I said, hey, can we pray for you? And they said, yeah, pray for, pray for me at, this, at your prayer meeting at your church. And they may never come to our church. But if they look at our lives and say something's different about you and God would say that we are righteous 
trying to be right with him and right with others, that we can, we can know that we have great power in prayer because our God is powerful. So don't hinder powerful prayer and intercede for those in the church. Now, verse 17 is in our Bibles probably in a paragraph with verse 16, but I'm going to separate it because I think it goes better with verses 19 and 20. So we are to pray for those inside the church and intercede for them. That's to go in before God for other people. But Elijah went before God before uh, and interceded for those that were wandering away from God. So look at the language of verses 19 and 20, and that's the culture that Elijah lived in. So my brothers, verse 19 says, if anyone among you wonders from the truth, so they are God's people, they maybe used to be in the church, and they've wandered away from God, as a sheep wanders away from the shepherd, or a dog wanders away from home. Okay, so if someone among you wanders away from the truth and someone brings him back. Now, Elijah's story. Let's go, go back to 1 Kings 17. 1 Kings 17 shows us a story of Israel as they wandered away from God. And the top of Mount uh, Carmel in Israel, maybe on the border of Israel and Lebanon today, is where the prophets of Baal gathered. And there were other prophets, 400. So there were actually 850 prophets. 450 prophets of Baal, that was the male deity. And then 400 prophets of Asherah, she was the female deity that the Canaanites worship, that the Israelites in the northern ten tribes worship under Jezebel and Ahab's rule. Uh, she caused them to worship Baal. She built a temple for Baal in, um, in their capital. And Elijah shows up in 1 Kings 17, and we're not told about his praying until we get to the book of James. So James fills in details that are not in 1 Kings 17. The first time you see Elijah at all is when he comes and confronts Ahab in 1 Kings 17. We have a little bit about him. He's a Tishbite in Gilead. He says to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here. And so he sends Elijah away because they're going to try to kill him. So the first verse of 1 Kings 17 uh, is mentioned in James uh, 5. We'll see that as we go back there, but not yet. So uh, Ahab and Jezebel caused the Israelites to follow Baal and Asherah. 850 prophets of these two uh, Canaanite deities are worshipped for a long time. Elijah shows up and says, it's not going to rain for years except by my word. And then he goes and hides. He's uh, supplied for. He goes to a widow. She supplies his, his needs. He raises the widow's son from the dead in the end of 17. Chapter 18, though, is when he goes back at the end of the three and a half years, and there's a confrontation at the top of Mount Carmel. Many of you know the story. If you don't know the story, fascinating story. So read the story. But the point of this story is to turn Israel back to God. They have wandered away from God. They're worshiping false gods. They think those gods are providing them 
rain, and so God attacks the god of Baal Asher, who every time they rain, they thought it was these gods providing for them. And with it not raining, this is a direct attack on the primary deities, Baal and Asherah. And so when Ahab realizes, it's, we're going to cry out to our god, it's, it's not happened for three and a half years, they got these 850 prophets, they're going to uh, scream, they're going to build an altar, they're trying to get their god to answer them, who is not even real. And if you look at verse 29 of chapter 18, 1 Kings 18, 29, as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. So eight hours at least, these 850 prophets are crying, they're screaming, they are cutting themselves, they're jumping on the altar, trying to get their God to send fire, and no voice. End of verse 29 says, no one answered, no one paid attention. Elijah lets them go first so that the Israelites would see we have been following a false god named Baal for years. Then Elijah, verse 30, says, Come to me, come near to me, and all the people of Israel come to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord. So there must have been an altar on top of this mountain. It was disrepaired. It was broken down. It didn't look like an altar. So he repairs that, and everybody's watching. That had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, not Baal, not Asher, not these 850 uh, fake prophets. Verse 32 continues, And he made a trench about the altar, and as great as would hold two seas, a couple uh, bushels of seed. And he put wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars, these are like five-gallon buckets probably, with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And did it a second time. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, water and stone doesn't burn. But he's making a point here. Do it a second time. They did it a second time. And they said, do it a third time. They did it a third time in verse 35. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with the water. Where'd they get water on top of a mountain? They had to walk down the mountain probably to bring it, I'm assuming, or they, it was drinking water, whatever it was. It took a while for them to get four, um, three times that they poured water, bucket after bucket after bucket after bucket of water, so it, they made a trench around it. This little, it looked like a moat all around his altar. It was all filled with water. The altar itself was wet. There's stones here. And then Elijah prays, verse 36. The time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned, and that you have turned their back, hearts back. So God is going to bring them back. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones. Fire doesn't burn stones, but God's fire does. And the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Fire doesn't burn water, but God's fire does. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And then Elijah said, sees the prophets, and they execute the prophets of Baal. Well, let's read the rest of the story, then we'll go back to uh, um, James. So verse 41, Elijah says to Ahab, 
Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a rushing of rain. Okay, now, out, I don't know how many clouds are in the sky today, but if there is zero clouds in the sky, which is what it was when uh, Elijah says this, Ahab looks and says, there's no clouds. There hasn't been rain for three and a half years, and Elijah says, there's rain coming, there's a sound of rain. Is that what it says? There's a sound of a rushing of rain. And they look outside, or they're outside, they look up and say, there's not a cloud in the sky, and Ahab really doesn't believe Elijah. So Ahab goes up to eat, drink, he's taking his time. He doesn't think he's got to go back to beat the rainstorm because there's no clouds. And Elijah goes up on the Mount of Carmel by himself, and he bows himself down on the earth, put his face between his knees, and he says to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. So Mount Carmel is right near the Mediterranean Sea, and they say, hey, go up and look toward the toward the sea, see if there's any rain coming. And all the while, Elijah is on his face before God, and he's praying. And he says to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. I'm in verse 43, and he went up and looked and, and said, there's nothing. He said, go again. He doesn't do it once, twice, three times, four times, five times, six times, Seven times Elijah stays praying, and he keeps sending a servant. Go look and see if there's rain. Go look and see if there's rain. Go look and see if there's rain. The seventh time, he says, verse 44, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, okay, so this little cloud the size of your hand. Now, I don't know about you, but rain doesn't come from clouds the size of people's hands, Right? But that's the answer that Elijah was praying to receive. Ahab doesn't think about it. He's just eating, taking his time and drinking. And he's going to take his good time to get back to Jezreel, the capital. And verse 44 says, he said, Go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was great rain. And Ahab rode, went to Jezreel, miles away, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Okay, fascinating story. So James is going to refer us to that story. And let's go back now to James. And how does this have anything to do with prayer for those who are outside of the church? Well, Israel was serving Baal and Asherah for years. Three and a half years, it didn't rain. And let's look at verse 17 of James 5. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He has a lot in common with us. He's just a man. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. So we don't get that in 1 Kings 17. But before he stands in front of Ahab, God must have told him to pray. And because he prayed, it didn't rain. And God answered his prayer. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And then Elijah stands before Ahab and says, it's not going to rain until my word, which is when God tells me to pray for rain is when it's going to rain. So then at the end of the three and a half years, the whole thing on the top of Mount Carmel, the fire comes down, burns up the altar. He tells Ahab to get back because the sound of rain, blue sky, and he starts praying again. And he's persistent. Seven times he sends his servant, hey, go look and see if there's any answer yet. No answer, no answer, no answer, nothing, nothing. And then the little hand, 
That's our answer, the, the cloud the size of a hand. That's our answer. Let's go. <laughs> and they start taking off because they know God has answered. So all of this, the three and a half years of stopping the rain and the rain when it came and the way it came, all was tied to a simple man praying. That's what James is teaching us. Why did the rain stop? So that the Israelites would turn back to God. They were wandering away from God. It's very clear with the text that they were wandering away from God. And it was this miracle that they saw the fire come out of heaven, lick up the altar, and they all fell on their faces. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They turned back from wandering away from God that day on the top of Mount Carmel. Or Carmel. So the intercession for those outside the church, what should we be learning? The Lord uses the prayers of his people to convict those outside the church. Those who are not walking with the Lord. Those who don't know God or have walked away from a God that they once claimed to know. The Lord will use our praying to convict those outside the church. The God does the conviction, but he's encouraging us through James here to be like Elijah in praying fervently because of prayer is powerful as it is working. Verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth and brings and someone brings him back, I'd like to have on our prayer sheet those who have grown up in our church that have wandered away from God and start praying for them specifically by name. Why? Because of this passage of Scripture. Because when we start praying for those who have walked away from God, whenever we see them, we'll talk to them differently. I can tell someone who we've been praying for, you know what we've been praying for you as a church, that you'll come back to the Lord. Because the Lord uses the prayers of his people to convict those outside the church. We see that in the story of Elijah. And the same type of man, we are the same nature like ours. We can pray and see God answer powerfully. So here's our strategy for reaching those outside the church. We pray that God would convict. We pray that God would use his word, use his truth, use his people to bring sinners, wandering people back to himself. Some study Bible may say that these are people who are unsaved, but it sounds like those who are brothers those who are Christians. I believe in backsliding. You can backslide, turn your back on God. Um, and sometimes when we wander away from God, it ends in death. That's one of the consequences. Um, but when that sinner comes back and stops sinning, stops wandering away from God and comes back repentant, wants to follow God, wants to obey God, their life is, is changed their soul is saved from a premature death at times. And in many of the sins that they would have committed, they say, I'm not living that way anymore. I want to follow the Lord now. We have to see a big picture of what God is doing, and sometimes he shows us like this and says, keep praying, keep praying, keep praying. 
Don't stop praying. People are away from God, and when we pray, God wants to hear, hear us. He wants to answer. He, he is the one that brings them back. And when they are back, their soul is saved from a, from a premature death, probably, or eternal death. And a multitude of their sins are covered and forgiven. So we pray. Will you pray with me? And then expect God to use you to reconcile people to himself. God has given us a ministry of reconciliation. And before that reconciliation happens, I guarantee you that God will provoke you as his righteous, faithful, godly people to get on your face before him and pray earnestly like Elijah did. Pray fervently, pray repeatedly, pray expectantly that God is going to answer. It's just a matter of time. He wants me to be faithful in praying. And we all know people who have wandered away from God, relatives, friends. Some of our best friends were in church, and now they've wandered away from God. And God's going to provoke you today and me today to pray that God will bring them back. And sometimes it could be years. Sometimes it could be days or months. That's up to God. It's our responsibility to pray. Will you pray? And expect God to use you to reconcile people to himself. Let's pray. Our Father, we can't do anything that you expect us to do without your help. We can't even cry out to you at times. We're so weak and sick. We're so cheerful that we forget you. We're so focused on ourselves that we don't look around to those who are struggling. We're so concerned with ourselves this Christmas that we can't see the millions around us that are dying and going to hell. We forget those who have wandered away from you as believers, and you want them back in a church where they can grow and change and be more like your son. I pray earnestly that you would use us as your people. Use other churches around us, Collinsville Bible Church and Fifth Street Baptist and Salem Bible Church and New England Bible Church and many, many others. Use them to pray fervently as well. And I pray that uh, many in New England that have never even heard your name would hear it. They would respond. They'd be drawn out of darkness into your marvelous light. Help us as your children to walk in light and walk in love and fervently, consistently pray to you to do the work that we cannot do. We expect you to hear, expect you to answer, because you are a powerful God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.